0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hey, it's Trini. So I hope you've been enjoying the Architects of Reality series because we wanted to give you a glimpse into what you're going to experience at this event. This isn't just another conference where you're going to go home inspired for a few days and not see anything change in your life. You're going to leave with superpowers that allow you to bend reality. And because we're committed to making this affordable and accessible to all of our listeners, we've even set up a payment plan. And I encourage you to get your tickets ASAP because the prices will go up the closer we get to the conference. And given that it's been six years since we did the last one, it's entirely possible that there won't be another one after this. Go to unmistakablecreative.com slash reality and get your tickets today. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash reality. Now, onto the show.
1: In terms of goals, there's simple cognition and there's complex cognition. And simple cognition is, you know, I need to go get some bread or I need to visit somebody who lives in a particular street. That's pretty direct. It's easier to get to that goal. You know where you're going. You know how to get there. And you use simple cognition to get there. But when you say, I want to make an extra $100,000 or I want to fall in love or I want to enhance my state of happiness, Uh, Oh, I want to find the the job that I truly love. Those are more abstract goals and they involve what we call complex cognition. And complex cognition involves more than just following some kind of formula. It really relies heavily on your own sense of ingenuity. I especially love being here, and I especially, I think, find it funky that I'm mean, in an interview where I'm going to be talking to the other person whose name is Srini as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I know, you know. For somebody who hadn't pressed play or hadn't gotten past that part, they might be thinking that I was talking to myself when I said that. Right. You know, I don't,
1: it, it really is it's funny because it, sort of, it, it makes you aware of, how, of, a, of a number of different things. You know, it mm-hmm. makes, you, makes you wonder how people who have names that are more common in this environment feel when they talk to other people, like how does Bob feel talking to Bob? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also makes you aware that you that makes you feel connected in an almost irrational way initially, because I don't really know how much we have in common, but because <laughs> right. we have a name in common, I, I think my mind immediately jumps to all of these assumptions that we have a million other things in common as well.
0: Uh-huh. Well, so I was introduced to you by way of uh, Bob Gower, who's a recent guest here on The Unmistakable Creative, who talked to us about the psychology of cult formation. And when I asked him, you know, who else should I talk to, your name pretty much rose to the top of the list. And then I learned from my business partner, Brian, that you do a good amount of work with, uh, you know, you consult with Neurogym, where he works as well. So I was really thrilled to be able to talk to you. But before we get into um, what your work is about I want to ask you a question that I have to credit for Brian for because he's asked me to start the show with this question. What did your parents do for a living, and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: My my mother was a housewife for most of uh, her life, so you know she stayed at home, sort of attended to uh, stuff at home. Occasionally, would help out in a family business, and my father was a freelance window dresser who ended up teaching window dressing at a local college for a while, but mostly just dressed windows for stores. And I, I think, in terms of, sort of how they influenced me, I think from a number of levels. I, 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 one of my feelings is that I'm incredibly fortunate to have had such a loving family, and I feel like a lot of that love really uh, helped to sort of carry me through difficult times in my life, it inspired me when I needed to be inspired, um, I think there were contrasts in their personalities. My mother was a sort of very sort of effusive, loving person. My father was a sort of uh, typical, stereotypical guy around structure and discipline. And something about the mixture of both of those things, uh, I think, really held me in good stead. So I am forever grateful to both of them uh, for the quality of emotionality that they prepared, uh, that, that they presented to me. But also, I, I think, for the ways in which they helped me kindle my ambition without getting in the way. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I, memories are not entirely reliable. So while I feel like my story is true, I'm not sure that I'm including all of the facts. But the, the, the general feeling that I have is, boy, I'm so lucky to have had the parents I had.
0: Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things you said is is they kindled your ambition without getting in the way. And, you know, both of us as come from an Indian background. And, you know, sometimes I wonder at moments of my parents, were they overbearing at points or, you know, did they kill ambition? Because the one thing I I realized, I think I got drilled so much into my head that if you want a good life, you become a doctor that I didn't want to be a doctor by the time I got out of high school. Uh, And I'm just curious, you know, if you're talking to parents, what do you say to them about how do they encourage ambition in their kids without stifling it?
1: So I think I I can make two comments. I think one is a a more personal comment about myself, which is that I think I was always pretty opinionated and pretty passionate about what I was doing. And I was someone who loved music as much as he loved math, as much as he loved biology. And so when I was considering a career, there there was a real seriousness about being a musician versus being a doctor versus sort of studying literature and then just being a mathematician or an inventor. And I think because... My my father knew how headstrong I was. I think he was smart enough to not insist anything. It was obvious to me that of all of those choices, he wanted me to be a doctor. And even when we talked about my career, my teachers actually called him to school and said, please, it's so classic for an Indian student who's doing well at school to become a doctor. Please, you know, we really do need more diversity in the community. I think he'd be a great musician. He really loves music. And my father said to me, well, your teacher called me to school today and said, I really think you should be a musician, but what what do you think about that? And I said, Well, I like the thought of it. I said, What do you think about it? And he said, Oh no, no, no. I'm not gonna be in the position of directing your career and then having to take responsibility for the rest of your life. You make up your mind about what you want to do. It's obvious what my preferences are. And my preferences are just about the fact that I would choose security over a more undefined career with the idea that you can pick that up at some other point in your life and integrate it differently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think That principle is an important principle because I think as it relates to other people and their kids, there are a couple of realities that I think I've learned over the years having worked with lots of adolescents who are at career decision points. Uh, One of the things I've learned is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. That's number one. Uh, Number two, one of the most humbling experiences that I've had was actually working with the child of people who are experts in giving other people advice about how to parent their children. And I think that just illustrated to me how hard it is to parent and how hard it is to find the exact right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that a sincere conversation and an honest conversation uh, with a certain amount of of seriousness about the serious implications, but also lightheartedness about the fact that in this day and age, any career that you're choosing up front is not necessarily the career that you're going to be stuck with. And I, I really believe that it's more about connecting with who you are and then manifesting that in a series of jobs that may or may not fulfill you and to tinker along with that process until you find something that truly resonates. So I would say that, that being supportive, recognizing the specialness in any human being, uh, you know, allowing them to express where they want to go with that specialness and allowing them to have that passion will give them the drive and motivation that they need Rather than whipping them into shape and making them follow something, uh, I think there's a way in which you can say, honestly, you know what, I'm a bit parochial and I think you should choose this career over that. But at the same time, I think the most important thing for you is to be motivated. And in order for you to be motivated, it's got to be something that you truly love. So would you like to talk to me about the different options and what you like versus what you don't like?
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you said basically we're conducting, you know, in a lot of ways, a series of experiments until we find something that resonates. And I can tell you, you know, for me, as as somebody who is an author and somebody who's getting to do what I do, I mean, for me, that sort of resonance didn't occur until, you know, probably the last five or six years. And I was well into my adult life by that point. Um, I am really curious why you think people stop looking for that point of resonance in their work and they resign themselves to whatever they think their fate is.
1: So a couple of different reasons. You know, I, I think from a biological perspective, um, uncertainty and change are threatening to the brain. So when, when we want to make changes, we can only talk, even though our brain is actually, we're wired to make changes, the brain also goes into a state of chaos when you threaten it with too much change. And this state of chaos is called cognitive dissonance. And essentially, it's your brain saying, whoa, hold on, like, why don't you just settle with what you've got? Um, And and part of that has to do with the fact that the chaos is unpleasant, because you've got to pay what we call a switch cost to get to actually make the change. And that means that for any change you make, you've got to pay an emotional price, which means you've got to be afraid, you've got to be uncertain, you've got to be prepared to be lost. And the brain doesn't like any of those particular states. So I think for a lot of people, uh, the change is much more threatening than just maintaining the status quo. I also think that, that for a large number of people, um, they're, they're often lost, and they, don't, they, they, they base their movement through the world on reality rather than a state of possibility. And my general approach to life is that no matter what you start with, start with a sense of possibility, because possibility does change your brain. It actually makes you feel more rewarded. It's basically a message to your brain that says, hey, I don't know how to get to where I need to get to but I know it's possible. So can you please get on board? And once you start with that approach, you can then you can then approach what you need to approach. Stop when you need to stop because nobody can do constant change. But at the same time, I think it's a tragedy if we just settle for the status quo.
0: Mm-hmm. So I want to come back to this and do a, a much deeper dive into this. Uh, but before we get there, uh, you know, one of the other things I know from reading your bio is that you grew up in South Africa, and I know you mentioned that you were, you've you been asked several occasions about growing up during apartheid. And I, I I just was so curious about what that was actually like, what impact did that have on sort of community and race relations that you were raised with, and, and how did that impact your entire perspective on the world and life?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's a strange feeling growing up in a community where you have your own beach, um, so you can't go to a white beach or a mixed race beach. Or a, or, a, or a black beach, you can't go, you can shop in, in the shopping mall, but you can't eat in the shopping mall. Uh, you, can't, you, you have your own amusement park. So it's a strange feeling to grow up in that kind of segregated way. And I think different people manage that in different ways. I think for me, uh, part of my defense around that was to really enjoy the vicariousness of it. And so if I, were, if I was walking past a pool, where there were white children playing in a, in a pool and there were two droplets of water that landed in my hand, I would just become completely aroused and excited by the thought that something had happened was not supposed to happen. And so I think a lot of my own defenses were really erotized. And I, I sort of began to feel curious about the things that I couldn't uh, be part of. And And I think for me, that curiosity fueled a lot of my own movement. It, one of the profound experiences I had was... Uh, was going to Stellenbosch. from. I grew up in Durban and and, and I, was, I, I was the first student of color in this department that I that I went to. And I remember the first day entering the dining hall and having everybody speak Afrikaans, which was my second language, but also laughed. I felt like my Afrikaans was not great. So I was like, you know, what are they laughing at? And th- there are two things that I think I, I took away from that. One was I very quickly brushed up on Afrikaans so that I could begin to speak the language of the other person. And the second thing was that I I actually just took a chance and started socializing with people and recognized, that was one of my first experiences where I recognized that when there are differences, we often make assumptions that people on the other side are necessarily, uh, that they feel negatively because of the policy in South Africa. But in that particular instance, I reached out with a sense of, of genuine curiosity and love. And became integrated in that community in a way that I had never anticipated. And it really allowed me to dissolve this generalization that when there are political systems that have general tenets, that they reflect individuals at the finest levels. Because what you find is you begin to understand that a lot of times people are threatened. So because they don't know what it is to be another color, and so they want to protect their self-interest, they also then start feeling guilty because they feel like you must hate them for being unfair. And that's just not what I felt. So in partly protected by the love of my family and partly protected by my own curiosity and drive, I felt very fortunate to have been in a position to have loved people of all races in South Africa. And I think in particular to have been in the position where I could express that love to people who are on the other side of apartheid and then to feel integrated progressively over time was, was really a very good fortune for me. You know, if you say, well, surely there must have been something difficult about it, I I think there was. And I think one of the things you learn is that there's only a certain level of that that you can take in because you really have to remain functional and you really have to find a way to navigate that society in the world. And so developing those defenses really helped me navigate that society and the world. And I think it taught me a lot about, you know, even today, when you see there's so much political fragmentation, there are so many fragmentations of opinion. My first response when I'm confronted with difference is not to freak out and say, oh, my God, I can't believe you don't believe what I think. It's to stop and say, what's going on here? Like, are these differences for real? Or are these just things that we're doing, ways that we're posing to make ourselves distinct? And is there some possibility for love? And it may sound strange for a neuroscientist to take that angle and things, but I I really believe um, in, in, in love and I believe in a sense of possibility. And I think that's what that environment taught me.
0: Hmm. So what is it in particular that planted the seed for your interest in this particular area of uh, human development, this idea of possibility, this idea of making change and tying it all together through neuroscience?
1: Well, I, I think I was always really curious about the human body, both aesthetically and scientifically, like the thought of like going through my life and not having a detailed education about the human body was very unpleasant. So I think at the most fundamental level, I just wanted to get my hands into what it is to be human and to really understand this physical body as much as I could understand it. And I think that inspired my interest in medicine. I think along the way, I became fascinated by mechanisms and I became fascinated by the way the body operates. And by the time I got to psychiatry, I recognized that there was something that was related to the physical body, but that also was much more abstract than a lot of the other processes because we couldn't visualize them. And so I think my curiosity was piqued by the fact that there was this thing called a brain that seemed to be involved in human psychology, yet there was a lot about human psychology that we could not perceive. And so, you know, when I was doing this, we didn't really have very much in the way of brain imaging. Uh, what we had was a lot of curiosity about well, what's the role of the brain in, in generating human psychology. And so I think of all the medical disciplines, that was the one discipline that really was undeveloped, and so it was very tempting to enter that and to enter that at a phase where the development was just starting to occur. Uh, and certainly, when I got here to Harvard, I, I think what, one of the first things that I did was was, do it, was a structural brain imaging study. And to give you a sense of how young the field was, when I went to uh, the person who was running the imaging center and said, "You know, I'm really interested in understanding brain structures and how we can use," computerized analyses to analyze these brains. He said, well, we've got an engineer and we have a computer and you know something about the brains. So why don't you guys figure out a way to do this? It had never been done in this lab before. So it was really, it was, it was the excitement of that early time and the curiosity and aesthetics about the human body that really inspired me. I would say over time, one of the things that I love doing because I have a love for the arts and a love for the sciences And I have a love for the concrete and a love for the abstract. The idea of integrating spirituality with biology and psychology and understanding this in a social context, that complexity really appealed to me.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more
0: Okay, so many questions come from that. Uh, You know, so as people are listening to this, it's the start of a new year. Uh, And, you know, I think the the biggest thing that most people think about as they start a new year is goals, change, everything that they want to have happen in their lives that perhaps didn't happen in the year prior. And, you know, part of the reason I I really was intrigued by your work is because you look at it through the lens of, you know, science as well as spirituality, as well as, as sort of social context. So, I I guess, you know, the the thing, this is a question I've yet to find an answer to. And maybe, you know, given your background, you'll be able to give me an answer. So one of the things that I've noticed as a pattern, and I've seen it in the people who read books, I've seen it in the people who participate in any sort of self-improvement effort, like going to a seminar, is they seem to all be broken up into three groups. There are people who will get the result, whether they did that thing or not, because that's just how they are. Then there's people who that thing could become the catalyst for and they could shift it. And then there's people who are stuck in this endless cycle. And I'm curious, what really enables, like, why is it that people are unable to make change as a result of their personal development efforts?
1: So I think there are a lot of potential reasons for that. Um, you know, one, so, so firstly, in, in terms of goals, there's simple cognition and there's complex cognition. And simple cognition is, you know, I need to go get some bread or I need to visit somebody who lives on a particular street. That's pretty direct. It's easier to get to that goal. You know where you're going. You know how to get there. And you use simple cognition to get there. But when you say, I want to make an extra $100,000, or I want to fall in love, or I want to enhance my state of happiness, uh, or I want to find the the job that I truly love, those are more abstract goals, and they involve what we call complex cognition. And complex cognition involves more than just following some kind of formula. It really relies heavily on your own sense of ingenuity. Now, we know from brain science, for example, that being motivated is not just about applying large amounts of effort over time. When when you say, I am motivated, there are two major parts of that sentence. There's the am motivated part, which has to do with having the drive to do what you need to do. But there's also the I part, which is when you say I am motivated, the question is, are you present? And one of the reasons that people are not able to be motivated to get to their goals is that, is that, there, are, that there are three sort of factors that we think about when it comes to motivation that, that we need to consider. One is the, the truth of what we're doing. Like, is what we're doing something that we truly care about? Secondly, are we aligned? Is, is this something that we're aligned with? Uh, and is this something that we feel that, that is, 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 is achievable? And the third is, are there conflicts that are getting in the way of my getting to this goal that I don't that I'm not aware of? Now, you know, approximately a lot of experts would agree that somewhere between 90 to 95% of brain activity is unconscious, which means that we are not aware of the processes that are determining whether we get to our goals or not. And so for a lot of people, there are unconscious conflicts, for example, that stand in the way of them getting to their goals. So, for example, if one of the reasons I really don't like the polarization that's going on in the political rhetoric right now is that this whole idea that the rich are bad and and, and implies that somehow it's good to be poor creates an ambivalence and a sense of guilt about the acquisition of wealth. And even if consciously you know that you want to acquire, it, unconsciously, de- depending on you're on the circles that you're moving in, there's something in you that says, you know what, that's not really the best thing. So your brain is going to follow what the message is that you give it. If consciously you're saying, hey brain, I want to make a lot of money, but unconsciously you're saying, but you should feel guilty about this. And if you make it, some other people are going to take it away from you. And, if, and what if you try to make it and you fail and other people laugh at you? Then your brain's like, you know what, this doesn't sound like such a great idea. Because unconsciously, you're deterring it from getting to your goal. So I, I think one piece of this is, is, is about motivation and the unconscious conflicts or lack of congruence that could exist. Hmm. I would also say that another huge part of this, there's a new theory called the selfish goal theory, which is about the fact that goals, when you have a goal and, and you, you have, it, it's not necessarily, a goal is simply a mental circuit in your brain. And it has to be represented in your brain all the time. So for a lot of people, they may have a goal, but in the course of a day, they get derailed. And even though they have that goal, that goal is not a strong priority in their brain. So slapping on a priority tag onto that goal is particularly important. The third thing I would say is that when we think about motivation and getting to our goals, one of the things I think we we don't realize is that a lot of times we don't get to our goals because we are not present. So there are a lot of scientists and philosophers of science who will now say that motivation is not just about conscious and unconscious effort or conflict it's also about is there enough of you online that you feel the permission to move forward in life so if you're doing something but there's a huge piece of you that that is just not getting expressed you don't have the capacity to actually pursue that goal you lose energy quickly and you're not engaged with what you need to do in life and so you know for a lot of people in their brains there's there's their manifest selves which is what they who they who they are to other people in the world but we all have this shadow self a darker side to ourselves which it's important for us to get to know because as we get to know the shadow self we invite more of ourselves to the table and so there is a genuine sense of motivation to move forward regardless of the things we have that we're proud of and the things we have that we're not so if for example you look at some icons in our culture who represent this kind of goal achievement. Look at Steve Jobs and his brilliance and, and at the same time, his temper and his lack of consideration. You know, I, People have told the story that people have said things to him like, you know, you're really not a nice guy about this. And he would say, well, tell me something I don't know. Because somehow in himself, it was not that he was self-satisfied. It was that he recognized that there were these parts of himself that he could deal with and parts that he couldn't. I think for every human being, there is this part of ourselves that needs to be invited to the table, just of our own self-awareness. And I think if we sterilize that out and we try to follow some kind of formula, then we're not accessing the full power of who we are. And so I think my mantra around the sense of possibility is above all, tap into your ingenuity, because it is your, your own ingenuity and brilliance that will take you to your goal. So for example, in my next book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, I point out the One Laptop for All project where people dropped off a bunch of laptops in a rural uh, part of Ethiopia where kids had never before seen any kind of technology. And so they wondered what would they do with them? Are they gonna sit on them? Are they gonna try to eat them? Are they gonna draw on them? Well, what they found was that it was just a few hours before they found the on-off button. Within a few days, they were singing ABC songs. And then within a couple of weeks, they had actually hacked Android. And this is from people who had never before had any exposure to technology. I did the same, a similar experiment with a group of executive coaches once, and, and I had sort of designed this new technology and said, OK, before I tell you how to use it, just take a half hour and explore it and see what you find out about it. N- nobody could advance beyond the beginning, because they were like, we don't know how to do this. So I think we limit ourselves and we block access to our own ingenuity because we are too busy following other people's formulae rather than really tapping into the fire of our own ingenuity. And if there's anything that I would want to do through this discussion, it is to remind people that there is an innate intelligence that we have, that educational institutions help us shape them. But we have this, this intelligence that we can access if we bother to take notice of it.
0: Wow uh so many more questions uh the first being how do you resolve that unconscious conflict like what can be done to deal with that
1: so you know I, some people would say that that it's important to have some sense of clarity uh-huh. so if you it, so basically put it on the table and say well okay so there's this part of me there's that part of me how do I resolve this uh, i would say that that the most realistic solution to to that question is that you recognize it without necessarily resolving it and you let it fuel you through your life so for example you know a lot of people want to be this and not that but the reality is that we all have some kind of two-sided self like we, we nobody wants to be hypocritical but at the same time sometimes you've got to be cruel to be kind you you realize that there's a part of you that's introverted there's a part of you that's extroverted there's a part of you that really wants something and a part of you that really doesn't want something well invite both of those parts of you To the table. And then there's a process that this uh, Polish uh, psychiatrist and psychologist describes called positive disintegration, where he says there are two kinds of conflicts that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. The one kind of conflict is what he calls a horizontal conflict. Like, should I stay at my current job or should I leave and go somewhere else? Should I work for a corporation or should I become an entrepreneur? Should I stay single or should I... Uh, Marry this person. I'm ambivalent about you know, so there there are a lot of these these kinds of, of Conflicts where they're horizontal because they're between two options at the same level of your life He then says that one of the ways in which you can begin to address and diffuse those horizontal conflicts is to realize what the real question is Which is a vertical conflict, which is how can I be a higher version of myself and once you realize that there's something that you want to be that is greater than where you are, and you strive towards that, it often will place those horizontal conflicts in context. So, you know, what, one of the things uh, that, that Jeff Bezos talks about is a regret minimization framework, where he says, the way in which he's made decisions is, he says, when I'm 80, am I going to regret not doing this? And, and I would say to people, ask yourself, what do you, what, why don't you guide yourself through your life with the things that matter most. If it matters most to you to have a family, guide yourself with that. If it matters most most to be a billionaire, guide yourself with that. Whatever it is you want, guide yourself with that, and you will find that the more authentically self-connected you feel, the more you will be able to connect to others as well because you will be engaged with your life. So although that's a long story, I think there's two things I would say. If the conflicts are easy, you make them conscious, and then you talk to people you trust, and you look at them yourself, if they're more difficult and you can't really decide, recognize that you can guide yourself out of those conflicts by simply asking yourself, how do I reach a higher level of myself? And what would that look like in the next month, in the next six months, and in the next year? And then once you know that that's what you want, that, that it, whether it's some different income or some different relationship, once you know what that is, let that be your guiding principle. Because I think for a lot of people, We forget that there are things that are worth being guiding principles and there are things that are not. So find the thing that you want to be your guiding principle and live by that.
0: Hmm. So I'm curious, um, you know, in terms of of reprogramming the subconscious, what kinds of roles, things like, you know, neurogen, which we talked about before we hit record here, um, affirmations, that kind of stuff, like what role does that play in the ability to reprogram someone's subconscious?
1: So, so I think one of the things we know is that we can reprogram the brain. Called neuroplasticity, it's possible to change our brains. And, and one of the basic ways we can do this is with a principle that's called self-talk. So, so sometimes people think it sounds a little crazy, the whole idea of talking to yourself. But there's a tremendous number of studies that now tell us that if we learn how to talk to ourselves more accurately, we can actually change our brains and change the directions in which our brains are moving. So here are some basic principles as examples, and obviously they would need to be put in context. Uh, there's a researcher called Daniel Wegner, and, and Daniel Wegner studied uh, a principle called ironic process theory, which is simply how to talk to your brain when you're under stress. And one of the things that his multiple studies have shown is that when you tell yourself not to do something, like if you say, you know what, I'm going to be... Uh, at some occasion, you know, somebody's birthday party, and I'm not going to eat the appetizers when they pass them out, under stress, you are more likely to reach out and eat them. And so what he started to look at was, why is it that when we're under stress, do our brains do exactly the opposite thing? And what he found was that, you know, in the classic situation, which is that, you know, it's like being at a party and holding two glasses of wine, walking across the room, seeing a white couch and saying, do not drop the wine. And the next thing you know, the wine's all over the couch. And it's like, well, how did that happen? Like, I just told my brain not to do that, and it did that. Well, it did that because under stress, the unconscious does not hear the word not. It gets primed by the main message, which is drop the wine, and it does what it thinks you want it to do, which is to drop it. So the practical significance there in that case uh, is that you can learn that, that when you frame your goals, you frame them in the positive so that your unconscious doesn't get confused when you're under stress. You know, and they actually show this in a number of different examples. They show this when, when soccer players, when they attached eye-tracking devices to their eyes, it, if they were about to score a penalty and they said, do not move your eyes to the right, the eye moves to the right immediately. So if we know that, it's important to then say where you want your eyes to move or what you want to happen to the wine or how you want to behave in the positive so that your unconscious will not react in a way that you don't want it to react. I think another important principle of self-talk, uh, which was actually found in a study by Ethan Cross and colleagues, was that if we talk to ourselves in the second person, we are more likely to reduce our stress. Now, there's there's no exact reason for why this happens, although there are a number of theories and hypotheses. But, you know, for example, if you watch Serena Williams and she's playing tennis and she goes back to the baselines, She's always talking to herself. She's like, you know, come on, Serena. And the question is, well, does it help to call yourself by name? And does it help to speak to yourself as if you're speaking to yourself? So then in that case, you'd say, Serena, you're going to crush it. And what the study showed was that saying, Serena, you're going to crush it if you're Serena, is much more effective than saying, I'm going to crush it. So talking to yourself in that way, as if you are by calling yourself by name and speaking in the second person can be much more effective. The other things we know is that a number of other techniques like reframing, labeling emotions, just calling out the emotion when it's there. It's like, you know, I'm feeling really pissed off right now. I need to figure out what to do. I'm feeling super anxious. I need to figure out what to do. Or looking for the opportunity in emotion by by reframing, by saying, okay, I'm, I'm really anxious about this. How can I use my anxiety for good? Just that kind of reframing can move brain blood flow from the anxiety center of the brain back to the thinking brain, so you can make decisions more effectively. So those are just some of the ways, and of course there are ways like mindfulness, which is simply focusing on your breath without paying attention to mental chatter, that can that can really change blood flow, brain brain blood flow as well, and can also turn on your creativity circuits. You know, in, in my most recent book, one of the things I point out is that is that everything and its opposite can sometimes help. Um, and so in addition to mindfulness, where you are focused on your breath, and you're also really ignoring mental chatter, it also helps to daydream in a deliberate way. When you daydream in a deliberate way, you turn on your creativity circuits. And a lot of this is happening unconsciously. So, you know, there was a guy named Jerome Singer, who in the 1950s studied this and called it positive constructive daydream. And one of the things he said, he found he found, and subsequently a lot of people have found this, is that If you daydream by just slipping into a daydream, uh, it's, it's not that helpful. And if it's constantly guilty and depressed content, it's not helpful. But if you set aside time in your day where you're like, I'm going to take these 10 minutes, this is going to be my daydreaming time, I am going to decide to daydream, and you practice what they call decoupling perception, which is instead of looking outside, you look inside your mind, and you just let your mind wander. Your mind will wander to what is relevant to you, much more than you realize. Like we think we're just daydreaming about random stuff. But in reality, the moment you put yourself into this unfocused state, your brain is able to retrieve delicious parts of your consciousness and then bring these puzzle pieces forward to construct important uh, visions of the future. And so unfocus is another way in which you can tap into these unconscious circuits. And together with focus, when you're in a rhythm of focus and unfocus, this system works really well to activate your unconscious and help you bring up material that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to bring up.
0: Wow! So, a couple more questions uh, about this. I, I think you know you brought up the example of increasing income, which is one of my personal interests. And you know, given again that we're at the start of a new year, I'm guessing that's probably on the list of goals. I'm curious if you have the ability to accelerate the pace at which uh, or the likelihood of. The, uh, the, the speed at which a goal actually gets accomplished using all of this.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Jocelyn Davis and uh, colleagues looked at a wrote a book called Strategic Speed. <coughs> and in it, they, lo- they found that there are three factors that can help you accelerate. One is clarity, which is how clear am I about what I want to achieve? Do I know an exact number that I want to achieve? Do I know in what time I want to achieve this? Do I have any sense of how I can achieve this? So the clearer you are, the better. The second is unity, which is, is everyone in my life on board with this? Because it's one thing to say, I want this. But if your friends are going to be like, hey, where are you? How come you're not around anymore? Or if you're significant other, like you're spending all your time doing this, why aren't you here? Or if you have other responsibilities you have to take care of. And if, if everyone's not on board, it's very hard to move through the system without friction. And then the third thing is agility, which is, are you prepared to tinker along and change course as you find out what's right or wrong? So for a lot of people, failure is a stop sign and they just freeze. But if you learn to be agile, if you learn to fail fast and recover fast and tell yourself that every every stop sign is really just a detour sign and it's just saying, hey, don't go there, go here, go somewhere else, you can really help yourself. So, so the answer to the question is yes, you can accelerate that that clarity, unity, and agility are the three factors that can help you increase your strategic speed. And if you're looking to start out somewhere, you know, take out a piece of paper, write out what your goal is, write down three things that make it more clear, write down three people who need to be on board, and tell yourself one thing with self-talk about how when you start the project, if it looks like you're failing, you will see it as a detour rather than some kind of instruction to stop and you'll choose another direction and just those three things by writing that down on a piece of paper can actually get you started and then you can build on
2: that wow
0: so you brought up focus earlier and the reason i am personally very curious about this is i'm in the process of writing a book about creative habits and so i have two questions um about this based on your own research one based on on the work that you know and the things you know about uh the brain how do we bring about more flow in our lives and then the other is what is the role of technology um in terms of how it's impacting the brain based on on kind of what you've done like how are our smartphones affecting us um you know how like how do we become more mindful about how we use technology And, and what kinds of effects are is it having that we're not even aware of
1: so the idea of flow i think is a it's a big question pretty much one of the major themes in the book um, that I wrote. But I'll, I'll mention a couple of practical things, and then we can go into things that are a little bit more abstract. So positive constructive daydreaming is one of those things. Developing the habit. I always tell people I prefer thinking of a tinker table rather than a timetable. So, you know, we all use our calendars, and we use some form of calendar to schedule stuff. Paradoxically, a tinker table is something where you fix a certain half hour every day or every other day to basically, basically do one of these unfocused activities. And the more you can build this into your day, the less you will stress out your focus circus. And so in that time, you can do one of several things. So positive constructive daydreaming is one of them. The second thing is napping. You know, we know that 10 minutes of napping can actually improve clarity. And so it can help you feel freer and give you more energy to be thinking in free form ways. We know that 90 minutes of napping can actually improve creativity. So that's an important thing to do. The third thing with with flow is, you know, a lot of people are hesitant about doodling. So if you're on a conference call or you're in an interview and you're talking to somebody, you think that doodling somehow signifies distraction. But there was a study that was done recently that showed that doodling actually improves memory by 29%. And that's because rather than straining our focus circuits by doodling, we are actually relieving the stress in the focus circuits and allowing our brains to last longer and to be in the flow. And then another practical example is what I call psychological Halloweenism, which is a, a cool technique. It was actually shown, they did a study where they asked, uh, they gave people a creative problem to solve, and then they asked them, uh, you know, to either imagine themselves as a rigid librarian or imagine themselves as an eccentric poet. And they found that people who imagine themselves as an eccentric poet were able to solve the creative problem more easily. Then they asked the group that, that imagined themselves as librarians to imagine themselves as eccentric poets, and they were better able to solve that problem. So from a creativity standpoint, from a flow standpoint, it helps to try on different identities throughout the day. And you, don't even, you, know, you, don't, you can wear a different outfit if you want, but just internally, if you can start to feel differently and start to behave like the identity of someone else, it's a playful thing to do, but I think it's particularly helpful. I think from a practical standpoint, those are some of the things you can do. Studies also show that it's actually, uh, it, it stimulates creative pathways in the brain to walk in a sort of undefined pathways rather than a linear pathway. So if you're on a hiking path and you just take another path that, that's not on the beaten path, you, you you actually are able to stimulate creative circuits more effectively. From a From a deeply psychological perspective, I think, that, that flow is a lot of how the brain is working anyway. And learning how to surrender to that flow is really what I think everyone's looking for. And I think the problem as we get older is that our prefrontal cortex, our breaks, get really strong. And so we overapply them and we overuse them. So creating a context where you can learn how to how to surrender to that in your relationships, in your conversations, in your explorations, can actually Go a long way, you know. Connected to a question that you asked earlier, one of the things you asked was, uh, you know, about why it is that, that we're not able to reach our goals, and and there's some really interesting theories around this. Um, there's a Kierkegaard's whole idea that that even though we say we want to be free, we are threatened by the dizziness in freedom, and that it's this that freedom on the one hand is this incredible place where you can be without gravity. On the other hand, it's like being without gravity, and you have nothing to hold on to, and so it freaks you out. And so, for a lot of people, there's this unconscious, unconscious messaging, which is be free, but not too free; have a lot, but not too much; have freedom, but not too much freedom. And you know, one of the questions that that uh, that this that this one of the phenomena this relates to is something called repetition compulsion. Uh, so, uh, Freud and a bunch of other uh, psychiatrists and psychologists were standing around watching kids. And what they noticed was that kids behaved in unusual ways. The first thing they thought was, this is kind of weird because what the kids are doing is firstly, they throw their toys out of the cops. So they said to themselves, as a human behavior, that's strange and it's even more troubling if we do that as adults. Like why would our brains be wired to throw out the very things that belong to us? Then they said an even more strange thing happened, which is that, People start the baby started to cry about it. So they were like, well, wait a minute, you just threw your toy out, now you're crying about it. And then the mother brings the toy back and they get really happy. And then the mother turns around and they throw the toy out again. And one of the things, one of the leading theories around this is that human, the human brain by default is wired to master disappointment rather than to seek fulfillment. And so one major reframe that I would offer anyone listening to this is, To ask yourself, am I spending a lot of my time trying to get good at the fact that life can suck or am I seeking some kind of fulfilling activity that I actually love rather than just being a coper in life? Because in order to reach your goals, in order to to allow yourself to be where you want to be, you need to get out of this habit pathway of mastering disappointment and build into into a week, at least an hour of doing something that is deliberately fulfilling.
0: Wow. And what about the impact of technology devices, all this stuff?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that if, if you look at the research in this, I think it, it works in both ways. I think, on the one hand, there's a tremendous amount of research that shows that technology affords us the ability to be creative. You know, it's like you get a text message, you can send a video to somebody now, you can choose, choose from that video, you can send emoticons. So, you know, th- there are ways in which technology can. It allows us to be more connected and it also allows us to be more creative. But studies are also showing that technology, on the one hand, we're connected, on the other hand, we're a little bit more disconnected because we're attached to these machines as devices of connection and are losing out on the person-to-person connection. So you go out at dinner and you know somebody goes away and you're checking your smartphone rather than looking around you and noticing people around you, noticing. The, the alive quality of people around you. And I think for a lot of people, there's a tremendous amount of addiction. You know, it's like when you check your emails. Part of what people don't realize is that we become addicted to it because it's a little bit like a slot machine. You actually, as you're rolling through your email, you're thinking, did I get a good one? Did I get a good one? Did I get a good one? And so we suddenly become addicted to this. And this really tires out the focus circuits of the brain, puts us into habit pathways in the brain, and makes it much more challenging to change. And for that reason, Do you really want to learn how to build unfocus into your day to relieve yourself from this addiction and to allow yourself to benefit from the creative elements of the technology without succumbing to things like the addiction?
0: Wow. Um, I can see now why Bob referred you as a guest. This has been really just fascinating and mind-blowing. I feel like it's one of those conversations that I will probably go back to like 50 times.
1: No, it's, it's re- well, you asked really provocative question. So <laughs> I think it's great to think with you about this, because I, I think one of the paradoxes about having access to this research is that you know, I don't really believe that there's an ultimate truth. I, I sort of believe everything I say, and I don't believe everything I say. I, 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 I recognize that, that what's helpful about these different frameworks is that they're just that, they're frameworks. And as I emphasized, I think frameworks by themselves are really not enough. You actually have to ask yourself, how can you access your own ingenuity um, and, and realize what's really happening? You know, I'll give you an example. I was at a meeting recently, a professional meeting. And I was sitting next to someone who apologized for not coming to the, coming there the day before. And he said, um, you know, I wasn't there the day before because I was celebrating my 35-year anniversary with my partner. And so the woman who was next to me asked him, oh, well, how did you meet your partner? And he said, oh, I met my partner at a party in Philadelphia. So in a very literal way, if you if you if you were a Martian and you were listening to this conversation and you had this burning question of how do you get to meet someone, what you would get what you might gain from that is go to a party and go to a party in Philadelphia. So I looked at him and I said, Why is it that when people describe how things happen, it it never sounds quite like the truth. It always feels like it's a summary of events but the most important pieces are missing. And he turned to me and he said, you know what, I think you're right. And this is why. It's because I was living in Manhattan at the time. And the thing that actually happened was I moved out of a one-bedroom apartment to a two-bedroom apartment. And when I made that switch, I realized now that what I was saying to myself was that I had space in my life for someone else. And so when I went to the party, it wasn't so much that there was this magical person, although there certainly was this person there, who I met, it was that something in me was ready to meet that person. And so I think a lot of times we think that we have to prepare, you know, we have to change our thoughts, or we have to do specific things to get to our goals. When in fact, I would say we have to change the medium in which our thoughts are growing. It's like, if you don't have a wet wall, you won't be able to grow a moss. If you don't have Soil, you know, like a weed is not going to take root in pure cement. In the same way, if you really want prosperity and you really want happiness, you have to ask yourself, is the fundamental nature of your mind prepared to accommodate that happiness? Or are you just accommodating only worries and accommodating only sort of things that don't work out for you? Uh, and, and, And a lot of people actually do this, by the way. And some of the more recent research has shown that one of the reasons people choose worry over happiness is they don't want to fall from happiness to despair. They would rather be midway at worry. So if something bad happens, the fall is not too great. But what kind of life is that? You know, in that in that kind of life, you're avoiding... I mean, wouldn't you rather just negotiate what to do if you go from happiness to despair rather than avoid happiness your entire life? So these kinds of subtleties that I think are, are an important part of the conversation they're an important part of self-talk. And I think if we, can, if we can just be more genuine with ourselves just to start with and, and, and really try to ask ourselves, you know, after all of this information, like, you know, where do I start? Just ask yourself, if, if I were living at a higher level of myself, what would that look like a month from now, six months from now, or a year from now? And, and write that down in a piece of paper and, and just look at it for a couple of weeks. And, and that just that information is like plugging in information into your brain's navigator so it will begin to activate what it needs to activate in your
0: unconscious to get you to your goal. Hmm. Wow. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: So, so,
1: so by unmistakable, do you mean sort of original or do you mean, yeah, I mean, ideally, <laughs> yes, but however you want to define
0: it, because I know people have answered this question a lot of different ways.
1: So, so, are, you, so are you asking me, what is it that makes somebody unmistakable? Yeah, what do you that think makes somebody unmistakable? I think authenticity is, is really uh, what it's about, because I think as long as you can be authentic, then you are, you are really aligned with who you are. And right or wrong, it's always going to be right for who you are. And I think the willingness to always grow in the context of being as authentic as you can be is a great formula for, for being unmistakable.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, this has been just absolutely fascinating and riveting. And uh, like I said, I can see why Bob referred you. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Uh, I, I'm at uh, Dr. um okay. and also at neurobusinessgroup.com and,